open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host at Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Mitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. We have with us Christian Decker. He's an engineer and researcher at Blockstream and got a PhD in Bitcoin. One of the first PhDs uh, in Bitcoin that came out from ETH Zurich, which is one of the top 10 computer science schools in the world. So we got a serious player on our hands here. So Christian, an interesting thing is we've heard a whole bunch about lightning, but we haven't necessarily heard your story when it comes to lightning and how it's come out, perhaps you could give the audience a little bit of uh, background on how your PhD work has played into this whole lightning network. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I am one of the earliest Bitcoin users, having read the paper in 2008 and sort of this, this whole hobby over time became, became my full-time job. When it came time to decide on a, on a PhD topic, I basically just decided to run with it and and we figured out that the light uh, that the bitcoin scalability is not all that great so we decided to analyze uh what the explicit limits are and what the uh, what we can actually do to improve those scalability limits after the first year we basically had the concrete numbers about what the scalability limits are so if you've ever heard 4 megabytes or 30 megabytes those are actually from for my for my research and after actually pointing to what the what the scalability limits are, we decided to uh, to go and try to raise them and improve them. And after a few failed or moderately uh, successful attempts at, at scaling on chain, we decided to to try our hand at, at scaling and moving the uh, the load of the Bitcoin network off chain into what we call duplex micropayment channels. And duplex micropayment channels is basically just a contemporary of, of the Lightning Network paper. They managed to beat us to the punch and, uh, and publish uh, slightly before us. And uh, so when, when it came time to decide on what to continue working, I decided to join the pro- project with a bigger momentum. And that's basically what, what led me to, to work on Lightning. And that's still what I do today. Well, that's kind of what happens when you're going through a formal academic review process with the dissertation, right? And somebody else isn't, and so they're able to put out a white paper. Oh yeah, it was it was pretty pretty sad for me, but uh, in the end, I had to admit that the Lightning paper was actually had better trade offs than duplex micropayment. Shows. Oh, interesting. But we, we were able to actually recover some of the features from duplex micropayment channels back into, uh, into the Lightning network. And we were able to, to propose quite a few changes to the network that, that make it more flexible and more, uh, and more scalable as well. Now, just this year, we, we've just, uh, we picked up our tools again and, and uh, decided to publish a new paper called L2 that sort of reconciles Satoshi's idea for sequence numbers. Uh, payment channels and sort of roll this all into uh, into a new system, which we call L2. 
So some people might not be aware of Satoshi's original vision uh, when it comes to these sequence numbers. Perhaps you could help teach some of us about what these sequence numbers are, how they're usable, like what use cases might result from them, and then uh, how uh, your work has been impacted on kind of bringing them back. Of course, yeah. So sequence numbers that were in the original implementation by Satoshi were basically meant to have rapidly adjusting payments between two parties or multiple parties. The basic idea is to have a transaction that can be replaced over and over and over again simply by saying we have now a transaction with sequence number X and the miner will, upon receiving a new transaction that is a double spend of, uh, of the original transaction but has a higher sequence number, then the miner would go and, and replace this old transaction with the newer one. The issue with that is that, that there is no way to actually enforce this in any way. Well, that's um, what you have a blockchain for, right? <laughs> yes, yes. So, so the original idea was basically to have them be replaced in a mempool without a transaction ever touching the blockchain. And it turns out that there are ways you can, uh, you can incentivize miners to not choose the, the later sequence number. And miners also have this issue of not being able to know when, uh, when they should stop waiting for a new version and now settle, uh, settle this, this, uh, this contract on chain. With L2, we were able to take this concept and, and make it enforceable by allowing these intermediate states to, uh, to, uh, to be committed on chain. So miners receive, still receive a transaction. They confirm it right away. And then we have a period where, where a newer transaction can arrive and override the effects of, uh, of the previous transaction, effectively making, uh, making the sequence numbers leak into the, uh, into the blockchain, but making them enforceable on the blockchain itself. So it was it was really a nice a nice uh, thing that we could reconcile this this original vision by Satoshi with the the status quo of payment channels. Yeah. So we're when we're looking at this Lightning Network that's coming out, we've got our base layer of Bitcoin, safety, security, ten minute confirmation times down there. Then we've got these trustless payments that are happening on top of like on top of the Lightning Network that are still Bitcoin, and there's like no debt, no IOUs with them. Who all's working in this space? I mean, we've got like Rusty Russell, we got Roast Beef, we got Elizabeth, we got you. Like maybe you could talk a little bit about some of our other key players and developers in this space. Yeah, the the, the whole uh, lightning effort has been very much a community effort with a number of, of companies uh, contributing. Most work has been done by by three companies, namely Asank uh, from Paris, Blockstream, well, we're from San Francisco, and uh, the Lightning Labs guys from, uh, from also from San Francisco. These are very small teams, but they but they've they've actually done a fair bit of work. So we're like two people working on uh, on this. Uh, the Async guys are three people, and the Lightning Labs guys are, I think, in the tens of people. Mm. So it's it's been uh, it's been very very nice to to be able to cooperate between these uh, three companies because we all buy into this uh, into this idea that uh, that one big collaborative network uh, has so much more value than uh, than having three different implementations that would compete on on users. This being a network, we very much have a network effect uh, when it comes to uh, to uh, to bootstrapping the network and to enable payments over it. Now it's but it it's still three different implementations, just the same Lightning Network. Yes, right, exactly. So 
In addition to these uh, three implementations, there is also a number of other implementations that are in various stages of, of development, but these are sort of the main three that, that have contributed the most to, to the specification. And the specification is, is very much a community RFC-like effort. And uh, we try we try to make this a public debate on, on what should be done and what, what should be fixed. And so everybody's basically free to come along and try their hand at implementing it. It's not the easiest system, of course, because we inherit the complexity from Bitcoin and we add some, some on top. But I think the specification is, is good enough that, that, we, that we can actually encourage people to, to build their own implementations. And so switching gears a little bit, you said like, oh, the 4 megabyte or the 13 megabyte numbers, those come out of your research. Uh, when you look at some of the other blockchains out there, like Bcash, for example, 8 megabytes, 16 megabytes. Now I think they have a 32 megabyte limit on there. What, what could possibly happen with that? I mean, like, you know, okay, you've, you've said it, the third, the four megabytes and 30 megabytes, but now they got 32 megabytes, which is like eight times larger than that. So what, what could possibly happen? What are some of the risks? Yeah. So, I mean, the, uh, having, having large blocks is all nice and dandy if you don't need them. I mean, it's, uh, it's like this, the, the, they have this, they have this animation of, of having the, uh, I think it's a cash highway or something like that. Yeah. The where they have like highway. 32 lanes and, and you occasionally see one car zooming across it. Whereas the Bitcoin, uh, uh lane is a single lane, uh, route that, that still processes a fair amount of, of, of transactions. Yeah. I mean, sure. They're not using any of the capacity right now. I mean, I think there are more transactions on Dogecoin, but let's say that it were stress tested. Yeah. Uh, let's say that somebody actually threw a significant amount of money at stress testing it, say 200 to $500,000. So they could just generate millions and millions of, uh, of transactions and lots of 32 megabyte blocks. You know, what would, what could we possibly see results from that type of a stress test? I mean, because assume it, it performs well, then we could use that as data for Bitcoin, right? So, I mean, so there, there's an incentive to use this $12 billion blockchain as a, as a stress test research and development lab, right? Yeah, honestly, I, I think you, you need much less than these $200,000 you, you mentioned before. It will be quite easy to, to flood, uh, to create 32 megabyte blocks in, in Bitcoin Cash and sort of see what the effects are. From my research, uh, I saw that you basically end up with two scenarios. One is the reduction in decentralization, meaning that less and less uh, nodes can actually keep up simply due to the communication latency between nodes. Which uh, is an ON squared problem? Uh, no, not really. No. It's, it's basically just a function of the diameter of the network. Okay. So what happens is that the network, uh, that the propagation of a block inside of, of the network is so slow that, uh, in the rest of the network that hasn't seen the block yet, there is a very high probability of finding a diff uh, another block. So orphan rates. Uh, it's not just orphan rates, but if this uh, load is kept up, then you will never ever reconcile again. Because your beautiful single line of, well, of a chain would suddenly look much more like a tree. Right. If it gets, like, if it's going to take too long to propagate and then validate, you're going to get behind the 10, the 10 minute interval. Right. Is uh, that what we're talking about? That, that's, that's also side effect because you suddenly, you suddenly see a, uh, observe a much lower block rate because you have a lot of conflicts. Basically, all of these all of these side branches that are eating away on your on your computation uh, power in the network, 
that's certainly an observable uh, observable fact but simply the fact that uh, i'm i'm on in one uh, one corner of the network and you're on the other corner of the network i find a block you still don't see it and now you find the block now we have we've just split the 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 uh, the network and whoever builds and on whichever one that's going to become the new the new chain but no we, we we will simply not converge ever again if this is a sustained load then we will just continue on different forks forever because in your corner of the network somebody else will find the block that builds on top of yours and somebody in my corner of the network will find some uh, hmm. will find the block on uh, on my end and if this uh, if this load is uh, is sustained then we will uh, eventually end up with what looks much more like a tree than than our beautiful single chain and that might not sound dangerous, but if uh, if you're on uh, on different branches of this tree, you have a different well, different UTXO view sense of diverge. exactly. Yeah. If you have a different view of the state that we try to reconcile, from my view, then I might actually start double spending uh, double spending you, or we might not even be able at all to to um, to negotiate. Couldn't they be brought back into consensus, and it would just cause effectively a reorganization? And so you might have relied on something, but poof, that history just disappeared, and now you've you've been brought back into convergence. Yeah. So so there's there's only two ways you can actually do this. Either is you you get a reduction in load, otherwise you'd be you'd be. Well, the stress test ends. Yeah, the stress ten stress test ends, and only when the stress test ends, which I mean, that's that's not a very realistic load on a global payment network that is on twenty four seven, right? It was supposed to be. <laughs> uh, well, it should be, yeah. So if the, if the stress test ends, yes, then we will have a huge, uh, then, then we ha- will have a re- huge reorg with lots of people screaming that their payment didn't go through despite them waiting for tens of, of, of confirmations. And the other solution to, to this problem is basically let's reduce the network diameter, which then results in a, in a, a far smaller network with far fewer people actually deciding on, on what, what happened and what, what the true transaction history well, is. I mean, if you don't have $20,000 of RAM to do, be doing full validation, <laughs> then what are you doing on a, running a full node, right? Yeah, I, I think I'm, I, I'm probably guilty of that as well because I don't have $20,000 uh, to throw at, uh, at a Bitcoin rig that only verifies the blockchain. Well, I, I think the BitPico guys, they put out a six megabyte block that took 40.4 gigabytes of RAM to fully validate. I uh, didn't hear about that one yet. Yeah, it's, it's not on their Twitter. And so, you know, it makes me wonder if we're craft like if, if a stress test is also crafting optimally malicious transactions that go into these blocks. I mean, it could really add, I mean, not just for during the stress test period, but also about what what happens when that is now permanently in the blockchain when it comes to resyncing like or syncing a new full node for example oh yeah i mean in that case you you just you you'd be adding a huge load to to new to newly syncing nodes but eventually they'd get over the hump that's that's i mean it's bad enough that that you can actually do this um we've we've seen in ethereum how that how uh, how you can't really sync from scratch anymore and replay the entire transaction history because it just takes longer than what's being appended to the end but but really the 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 far bigger danger is that uh, that if you uh, if you do this on a on a continuous basis uh, have sustained traffic and and also craft these uh, these attack transactions so to speak 
then you, you you could actually make it such that that slow notes uh, and and I mean by slow notes I mean laptops and, and and personal machines, not just Raspberry Pis, could not keep up anymore, and and that would be uh, to the detriment of of the network as a whole because you've just lost a number of verifying notes that would have been able to tell you if something fishy has gone on. And you're not able to replace with new reinforcements because it takes too long to sync new full nodes. Yeah. It, because the stuff being appended is now taking longer than, like, you're just never going to catch up. So you never get reinforcement nodes. So you're just going to have a constant attrition of nodes. Is exactly. that kind of what's, how yeah, this plays out? That's, that's basically what, what happens in the end. The, the, the solution that Ethereum went, uh, went for is basically just let's trust another node that they were correct and clone their state. Instead of trying to verify everything themselves, they now uh, they now trust that a node has given them a correct state. So Ethereum is no longer trustless. It is sort of trustless in that you uh, trust that everything in the past has been done correctly, but um, you can't prove it because it takes too long to sync a full node. We, we've we've had a few people that try to uh, to get very beefy machines and sync from scratch, and I think they're still doing it. What are we talking about? Like, what's the cost of one of these beefy machines? That's a good question. I'm not. I'm not up not to date sure. on, on on hardware costs currently, but I think the estimate of twenty thousand dollars is not that far off. Wow, wow, and that that greatly like reduces the decentralization and censorship resistant properties of of a particular blockchain. Absolutely. I mean, when you have this type of full node attrition. Absolutely. I mean, what, what, what Peter Willis uh, says normally, uh, usually is I don't care about how many nodes are there, but I care about me, uh, me, uh, myself being able to verify that everything was correct. So there's, there's a direct impact about me being able to verify independently from other people that what I'm seeing is what, uh, what the, what the true state is. So you've been around the space for a long time, you know, as we close up the interview. What are you most excited about in this uh, whole new vista of computer science? And also, what are some kind of just recommendations or advice that you might have for people on the other side of the microphone? Ooh, that's an interesting question. So obviously, I'm, I'm very much excited for off-chain uh, payment channels and uh, and a whole slew of, of, uh, of innovation that also comes from the Ethereum camp. I've just come from, from a conference where everybody was basically building off-chain protocols for Ethereum. And the usual excuse was, yeah, we can't build this on Bitcoin. It's too hard. And I'm pretty sure we can backport most of that stuff into Bitcoin. And so that's, that's definitely what, I, what I'll be trying uh, in the future. But there's also a lot of, of very interesting innovation happening on chain. There's, uh, there's taproot, graft root. There's, uh, aggregatable signatures. There's Schnorr coming, uh, uh, coming hopefully soon that will enable a whole slew of new applications. It's a very exciting space at the moment. And I, I don't think it has been this exciting for a very long time. And how about some advice? That's hard. If, if you're interested in tech, just follow, there's just follow your interests and you'll find something that is, that is both challenging and rewarding and, and you'll, you'll have a great time. Well, there you have it from Dr. Christian Decker, first PhD in Bitcoin from top 10 computer science school, ETH Zurich, engineer and researcher at Blockstream and kind of a inventor of lightning network in a certain type of a way, right? So thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. 
be sure to get a copy of the free Bitcoin guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share Bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise, spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate.